Welcome back, guys, to another installment of the JPS podcast, and we continue the discussion of the psychology of lifting, and as Mike Isratel left the conversation, we were joined by Ian McCarthy, and him and Eric Helms discussed some of the practical considerations relating to lifting sustainability. The guys share many of their personal experiences with this and draw parallels between training and nutrition, which I think will benefit many of you. We also chat about dealing with the expectations as a fitness professional and how they manage this and some other aspects related to psychology as it influences our ability to train hard and continually progress. Enjoy the episode, guys. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe and like the video. Cool. So we just finished up uh, roasting you, Ian. Um, I was talking about your deadlift video and how people were criticizing you for being a bitch. Um, I've heard Baha made a video. Yeah, I watched. Which... I watched it yesterday. Well, the... people still watch Baha. I, I listen I mean, to I... him just for the lols, man. I think he's fucking. I just laugh at him because it's so amusing to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the I, I'm actually not like personally upset by that. When someone first told me, because you know, I don't watch his stuff to be aware of it without people telling me. Um, my response was, I think he has every right to do that. I mean, I did post the video publicly. Oh. So whatever you post publicly, like people have the right to criticize it. Um, my only concern is, do I want to spend any time engaging with that? And the answer is no. Absolutely. So I did end up blocking about 10 people, you know, just the people with oh. the, you know, I've never interacted them with them before straight to the insults. Um, and then once you know, you can kind of tell when something's happened when you get like 10 really dumb comments like in seven minutes. So finally, I just uh, disabled commenting on that post. And then I actually made my Instagram private. And I'll either today or tomorrow, I'll make it public again. And mm-hmm. it won't be an issue. So, um, But also, I wanted to apologize for for obviously fucking this up. Full disclosure, my um, the, the fatigue I've been dealing with as a result of depression has been really crushing. Um, I can only describe it as imagine being the most tired you've ever been six to eight hours a day, like minimum. And um, so, you know, things related to that is why I'm so late today. If if, if it weren't a real um, medical emergency, then my ability to do things like this would be improved. No, it's okay, man. I hope oh, you're all right. All good, bro. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All good. All good. So, um, yeah, do you want to get into talking about lifestyle management and lifting sustainability? Uh, Ian, considering that you are lifting for life and no bullshit bodybuilding, um, do you want to talk about what are the key factors you see in you know, improving somebody's lifting sustainability? Obviously, you've been going through quite a significant uh, you know, battle with your own personal issues, but you've still managed to continue to lift. Um, which I see is rather impressive. So do you want to talk about how you've managed that and some some of the tips you have that listeners may find useful? Sure. I mean, first I want to say thank you. My, I, I tend to think I do a really shitty job, but I'm probably my own worst critic. Um, but I think, I think there are a number of really good ways to approach this, one of them being you need to get a good sense of what you can actually do um, because the – it's easy to conceive of this perfect situation where you have unlimited cash flow. Also, you don't have to work. Also, you have two people working full time to cook all your food. 
you have access to any gym 24 hours a day and so on. And that might actually be a fun thing to work on as kind of something to amuse yourself in the middle of the day. Uh, but you know, how many, maybe like six people on the planet are realistically in a position vaguely like that kind of top six at the Olympia. So for the rest of us, it's going to be somewhere else on the continuum of that's one extreme. And the other extreme is, you know, never lifting. Um, so yeah, just being very honest with oneself in terms of what you think you can do. And I've even tended to, I'll ask questions like how many days a week do you think you can lift? And, and people will, people will tend to want to give a range. So they'll say like four to five days. So I say, okay, shoot for four, you know, actually low ball it such that it's easier to uh, get over the bar because the bar is lower to be, to begin with. And if, you know, 16 consecutive weeks, you make it to the gym four times a week, you can probably add to that. Um, but man, I mean, so many times I, I've either coached people or just, you know, talk to people uh, informally and they'll say, oh yeah, I can definitely lift five days a week. And that actually means like three days in two weeks. I mean, there can be night and day discrepancies between what someone, I mean, part of what can be scary about all of this is someone will, and this definitely happens for me. I mean, scheduling this discussion being an example, I was, in my opinion, very proactive about you know, scheduling the time ahead and blocking it out in my calendar and all of this. And then when today came around, the past two or three days have just been not good. And I wasn't able to stick to that. So, um, yeah, I would say start with a sense of what you're trying to accomplish um, what you can actually adhere to. Um, and then the rest of it is, is really willpower discipline, which can be a very overused concept. I think there's much to say for habit formation, getting in the groove of, I would actually feel weird or not going to the gym. That's probably a big reason why I haven't missed that many workouts due to depression, actually, because I, I would probably actually feel like it would be weirder to, to not go. Um, and then being cognitively flexible, I just want to note it or note as an aside, partially to amuse myself, but it's something worth thinking about. The single um, kind of cognitive trait most associated with general mental health is cognitive flexibility. It's one of the executive functions, but it's the most important, arguably, or the best indicator of just this person is an okay person. Um, so commit to something and do your best to do it. But then if you can't do the seven days a week, or maybe it's three days a week, or maybe you're in the position of, um, why can I not remember his name? I was going to say 3DMJ Godfather. This is terrible. What is his Jim name? Powers. Perfect. So, or you might be in the position of Jeff in uh, 2012, I think when he had his son, whenever it was, he, for some period of time, he didn't lift. And my understanding is Eric said to him at some point, you know, you can't lift like once a week, like for 20 minutes. Like I imagine it would be something like do a set of squats and like a set of like one hip hinge and some kind of press and a pull up like once a week to, to not completely detrain. Um, so, so maybe that's actually where the bar is for someone. Um, and then again, adjusting based on how it pans out, which means you might be able to do better or worse, or maybe you, you got it right. Over-explanation is a symptom of autism, but there's probably some good info in there. <laughs> now that was awesome. I, I, 
I like it a lot. It's funny because uh, before you came on, I was talking to Mike and I went on a mini tangent about constraints. Mm. And I think that that's very, it was very much in line with what you were saying and that um, you have to have a realistic perspective on what your constraints are versus trying to set something up, constraining yourself to something external, you know, um, like I've even seen this reflected in some of my programming. Sometimes I'll I'll get away from the weekly split and just have someone do an upper lower off. And they go, well, how, many, how many days a week should I train? And I go, well, the days you can train, just do upper lower and then take a day off. And they're like, so is that Monday, Wednesday? I'm like, no, bro, seriously. When the next training day, you'll do upper, and then the next training day, you'll do lower, and that's it. Like it's that easy. And if you have all these off days anyway, then you can just not even have that off. You can just, if you only train twice a week, upper lower, next week, upper lower, that could be full, full. Um, and I, I think- I apologize. I apologize for interrupting and I'll just, yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm going to apologize now for future interruptions. I tend to interrupt because otherwise I forget what I'm gonna say, honestly. But I used to write, what you're describing used to be my default way of programming. Mm. Um, for a long time, I would train three days and then take one day off. Or I would even do something even more flexible, like uh, train these three days, and then the fourth day, either rest or do kind of very low intensity in the sense of low load, like upper body training, if you feel good. Um, I've probably even written things more flexible than that. Like if you need two days, you can do them because such and such, you know, the program is designed such that your frequency is still high enough. But to a large extent, I stopped doing that because people were just like, Wait, I don't get it. Like, this, mm. like you know, um, and I, I mean, I can empathize with that because the seven-day thing is so ingrained. But yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, it's also like you were saying that you know I've um, just by function of being a personal trainer long enough, I would have clients who would you know lose a lose lose a, a family member or or have it get divorced or, or might actually have clinical depression. Uh, and, you know, they had been recommended to train um, because from, from, from a doctor or a psychiatrist on the side. Um, and it is it is very difficult to apply a strategy like that from the start, I've found, because the habit isn't there yet. So if you tell them train when you have availability, then nothing happens. So it, it's this interesting thing where you need to make these these kind of hard line rules initially and just have it get done and where it, it's it's not really an option not to do it, at least mentally. Um, whatever gymnastics have to occur in your brain for that to happen, I think is critical. And then once you have a few months under your belt and that's what you do, that's when you can start to utilize some of those strategies. Um, I think uh, I, I remember having a conversation specifically with one of my clients back in 2008 or nine, might've been 2010, I think it was after my after my dad died and I gave her my my perspective and I said, hey, she I know what you want to do right now since what happened in your life is that you want to go right. I've got to dedicate all my time to dealing with this and there's an emotional strain and, and just um, my energy is not going to be there. But trust me, you've been doing this for three years. This is this is your anchor in a storm. And for you to say, I don't have time for my anchor while you're in a storm, it's going to be worse. And I think it's it's probably really tough to to stick to that where I think the first thing we all do when we have something really, really stressful that gets dropped in our laugh is we cut away all the, all the shaft, you know, we just let go of everything that we see is not essential because we don't have the, the mental ram to deal with it. Um, but I think that shouldn't include things that 
give you more RAM. Let's put it that way. I think when self-care goes out the window, that can turn into a spiral. Um, and I've seen that happen to people. And then it's, 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 a, it's even harder to climb out of it. Yeah, I think a lot of parallels can be drawn with uh, you know what we're discussing there, teaching somebody how to follow a flexible diet. I think you know telling people they can eat whatever they want, provided fits their calories and macros, um, you know can just cause a lot of confusion. And like I don't get it because those habits um, and the the skill of restraint isn't uh, you know built in, so to speak. Same with uh, training. You know I think like you guys are alluding to, there needs to be some structure, rigidity. Those habits are yeah clearly established, and just getting to the gym habituated, and then starting to teach people um, obviously the principles and giving them greater autonomy and flexibility, like you're discussing. But yeah, I guess that's a really good continue. Particularly with regard to diet, I've been I didn't really make a decision to do this, but I've just found myself having more interactions with. I'll say lay people recently relating to diet and it, it has really struck me how effective restriction can be as long as the psychology involved does not become pathological. If you just say, um, if you have someone who, and, and there's so many people like this, it almost, not almost, it actually makes me question the literature on flexible dieting, to be honest, not saying that, it, that the conclusions are untrue in terms of Generally, it does generate better outcomes, but yeah, you might have someone who you basically give them a meal plan or, or perhaps you just say, okay, every time you eat, you know, when you keep ice cream in your house, you reliably get out of bed at 11 PM and eat half a gallon of ice cream. And when there's no ice cream there, you don't even think about it. Never buy ice cream. I mean, I have literally said to people like this food, if you can never have this food in your house. You have roommates, maybe, like as odd as this might be, it might be appropriate to have a conversation with them and say, you know what, you're an adult, you can have whatever food you want, but it would be helpful for me if this food was not physically present in, like here where I live. And so you end up with some admittedly kind of wacky sounding conclusions, but you know, it's context dependent. It's context, context, context. And Mm -hmm. I also wanted to add, with regard to habit formation, I mean, by definition, you have to form the habit. Mm-hmm. And the way you do that is the pure work ethic or discipline, you know, over and over again, consciously deciding to do something as such that you get to the point where you, you just do it by default. Um, again, kind of an odd example, but I'm still not quite in the groove of reliably taking my antidepressant medication just by default. Part of it is I overthink everything, so of course I'm going to question, you know, every dosage every day because that's really the way to do it, right? But um, yeah, just getting in a groove of even something like scheduling. Uh, this that's actually a really good example. Once you get once you get yourself in the groove of a schedule through alarms and always in bed at a certain time and so on, your circadian rhythm will adjust to that. And then you'll just wake up at that time, unless you have you know, sleep disorders and so on. But um, it's actually for that reason that melatonin supplementation gets more effective over time. Because initially you're just taking exogenous melatonin, and as your circadian rhythm adjusts to that, you then have exogenous and endogenous systems getting you to maintain that rhythm. So yeah, initially just you gotta do it, but at some point you gotta stay in the groove, and the key is to stay in the groove. 
Because as yeah. soon as you fall off the wagon, like the day you skip the gym, when it's not planned, the next day is going to be the easiest workout ever to skip. Um, and I think that goes for diet and many other things. Awesome. Can I tangent on the diet thing? Because I think there was some really, there's some interesting stuff there. Um, so the culture of like the mid 2000s on, online and in the quote unquote evidence-based fitness community uh, was one of pitched battles against the old guard who said you had to eat this way. These are the six foods that work. You have to do it every three hours. And here's the justification why if you don't do it that way, it's bad. And the, the problem with um, debate style arguments where one side is trying to win and believes they have the ultimate truth, which I think was true on both sides in, in those days, uh, versus a collective sharing of perspectives to try to get a better outcome, is that almost everything gets lumped together and labeled as incorrect. And the only problem with these systems where you have these hardline structured rules uh, and you have to do it this way is the have to part. When you really think about it, like Ian said, it's an incredibly useful heuristic to say, let's avoid high calorie, highly, highly palatable foods. Let's have an eating schedule. Let's do these certain things. There are many elements that came from the kind of old school body only approach to dieting that got discarded when we went to the full if it fits your macros approach that became incredibly harmful to dieters. Um, people making it way harder on them than, 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 way harder on themselves than it needed to be uh, because of some of those things that got lost because that whole culture was discarded. Like I've seen people spend 45 minutes making breakfast when they're 7% body fat. That's a bad idea. Like this is not, the goal shouldn't be to try to generate the most flavorful concoction you can for only 300 calories. You know, and entire companies have been developed to feed that pathology. You know, like, I mean, I think if it fits your macros was probably the best thing for Walden Farms that ever happened. You know, <laughs> um, so only their is good, to my knowledge. They, they got a few things back when I was making those forty-five minute breakfast. I, I found, <laughs> but um, but nonetheless, I think the. I used to rail against these like uh, these these rules because I, I figured the problems with the rule, but the problem is actually like Ian said, when you develop these fear-based beliefs around when you don't follow the rule. But if you just see them as useful structure and useful systems to simplify uh, your dietary process and to remove choices, which are opportunities to make the wrong choice, um, then then you don't have to deal with willpower as much, you know. Um, take it too far, you do. Like, you got to follow this incredibly rigid diet, and you have to. It's the only way to do it. You've got to diet for 12 weeks, and you have to lose a lot of weight. Yeah, you're just going to burn yourself out and step off of it. But if you combine some of the elements of both, uh, to where you have a structured meal plan, you've cooked beforehand, uh, and it's well balanced, and all you have to do is open the fridge, get the Tupperware out, and put it in the microwave, and then you can go to work. That's way better than going, all right, how do I fit 15, 40, and 32 into this meal? You know, mm. That requires a lot of thought. So I, I think there's uh, a lot of value in, in, in looking for these heuristic simplified solutions like we were talking about with both training and nutrition, mm -hmm. uh, so long as they don't have these fear-based pseudoscientific uh, explanations under them. And, and also to your, your point about it makes you question the flexible dieting research. I think one big weakness of the flexible dieting research is that it's all 
it's, it's almost never on an intervention to try to make someone more flexible. It's just looking at people who are that way or are not that way. And it's compared to people who are super restrained, restricted, and in uh, rigid dieters versus it's just saying, hey, is it better to have a flexible dieting approach or a or something that, that where you have this structure emphasized approach? Because I do think if you just took the general pop and you said, hey, read this article that's 400 words from ifitfitchermacros.com and then use this calculator and then you're free to get unobese. Or if you gave them something like Weight Watchers, Weight Watchers would crush if it fits your macros in the, in the general population because it gives them a point system, heuristics, do this, even though they're fundamentally the same thing uh, when you look at it from a, uh, like a nutrition data perspective. Awesome. I think, uh, yeah, to round up that whole uh, you know, sustainability, you know, we obviously started touching on nutrition there. Um, but sustainability and lifting and lifestyle management, uh, we could say that systems are very useful provided that they're not fear-based um, in creating sustainable habits and minimizing the amount of decisions we need to make. So really good discussion and points there, guys. I guess moving forward. Uh, One thing, I'll keep it really brief. I just wanted to add that uh, Gary Vaynerchuk is now the latest meme in, in, in the internets, as George Bush would say. Um, but... He, he will occasionally say something that I just, it, it couldn't be more true in my mind. And one of his recommendations is make quick decisions and then adjust to those decisions. And this explanation is actually going to be a little longer than I intended because more technically, this, this is the distinction between what I think is called like stratificing. It's like the combination of the word strategy and sacrifice and it's, it's used in the literature relating to decision-making. And that means of making decisions uh, is basically comes down to, at, given all of the uh, possibilities available to you, whichever one arises first and is good enough, not perfect, but acceptable, do that versus what's called maximizing, where every single decision you make, you endeavor for it to be truly the best, best reasoned, most rational, considering all of the available information, et cetera, uh, decisions. And stratificing, that might not even be the term, but basically not maximizing, destroys maximizing in terms of uh, subjective satisfaction with the outcomes because you make many more decisions and many more good decisions. Like you're actually ultimately more satisfied with the decisions you make because you can't maximize. It's actually not possible. You don't have enough information. Your reasoning faculties aren't good enough, etc. So when it comes to all of these things, it's one of the things I've most benefited from as someone who's tended toward, you know, too much kind of let's rationally analyze like, Every, you know, everything, should this be like 655 or 70 and so on, is making faster intuitive decisions and then pay attention to what happens and then be very willing to throw out what you're doing if it's not working or if it is working, keep doing it. And then you will end up, so the, the it works for me thing is, is almost like, I'm, I tend not to say it because of what's attached to it, but I, I've had the thought repeatedly that it's almost one of my favorite concepts now. Because you might end up way over here where 
four meals a day are like identical and then your fifth meal is always different. Or maybe every single meal is always different because you are incredibly flexible, incredibly low stress. It doesn't take you the 45 minutes to make the breakfast. It can be a different breakfast every day and it takes you 14 minutes. Or someone might actually end up at the extreme of they basically eat clean, like pure, clean, however you want to define that. But, and, but it actually generates the best outcomes for them and they don't feel restricted because when they weirdly, when they loosen things up and get more flexible, they get more stressed out. So short explanation. Awesome. And I want to continue this discussion. So we're not moving on. Sorry. I would dare say that you too, and I'd like to put myself into this category, are somewhat uh, in tune with our internal dialogue and a little bit self-aware, whereas that uh, skill and trait is not so common amongst uh, a lot of people, not uh, as it relates to their training and diet anyway, um, because they just haven't had the experience or been exposed to the information and you know been trying their hand at getting better at this stuff uh, for the duration that we have. Um, so I think this is a very important skill in being able to find what's sustainable um, for you as an individual. So Eric, what would be your key tips for somebody to improve how self-aware they are with their training and diet? Yeah, I probably the first thing I would suggest is having a formal process of recording information. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so because that that forces you to do it. You know, the uh, I, I've I've not that I've I've done this or recommended it because I'm not a a therapist, but. A lot of the a lot of the treatments I've seen or interventions I should say is probably a better word for it when someone is experiencing like a binge eating episode is to take a second and write down what's going on why it's happening. Um, if you can do that, it almost guarantees that it stops. Most of time you can't do it because the whole reason you're binging is because you're not in that part of your brain, and that's why when you get into that part of your brain, it it gets you out of that behavior. So the definition of a binge eating episode is that you lose a sense of well, one of part of the definition is that you don't have a sense of control over it. Um, it's not what you actively want to do with all of your brain. So if you can write down why you're doing it, it starts to lose a lot of power. Um, so in, in kind of a much less drastic example or acute example of that, but parallel to it, um, when I work with someone, Gen Pop, uh, we used to work with someone and what I recommend to trainers, uh, the, and I, what I've talked about in some of my flexible dieting uh, lectures is first step is just to start tracking your food and writing some of your subjective feelings about it and just recording it without any intention to change it. Um, and I think that generates uh, the dialogue that, that exactly what you're talking about that some people lack. Um, and I think you could make the same parallels for, for training, um, decision making. Really, I think uh, journaling and mindfulness has been across the board shown to be a beneficial thing. And I think you, you can, you just need to create some kind of structure to apply it to these concepts. And then I think that will really do a ton. Um, you know, meditation is also great. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, just, just, I think some, sometimes the modern world, um, does not present the opportunities to develop self-awareness and mindfulness. So you might have to artificially create that space, um, with something like, you know, an app on your smartphone, which is one of the most ironic things ever, but it's incredibly effective. So um, th those are probably my two big recommendations and things that I've, I've actually used as, a, as someone working with others. Awesome. Ian? My first thought was pay attention. And that 
as a, if I were a viewer of this, it would be easy to think, well, that's completely useless. Like, great, you know, Nike, just do it. But in my experience, there is a very uh, obvious intuitive difference between doing something, meaning to do it, pay, like, again, paying attention versus um, actually a good way to illustrate this would be, have you ever been doing something and then suddenly you're like, wait, I'm doing this? Like, you may have made the decision to do it and you're doing it, but then you just suddenly have this moment of like, what's going on almost. Like when you accidentally drive home when you're trying to drive to work. Yes. Or oh, I'm trying to think of other. Or when you read, when you turn the page three times in your book and you realize you didn't actually, you were reading it, but you didn't actually pay attention and, and understand anything you just read. That, yeah. that is actually a great example. And that's happened to me many times quite frustrating, but I will read like two paragraphs of something thinking I'm paying attention. And then it suddenly occurs to me that I have no idea what I just read. I could tell you nothing, nothing about it. Mm -hmm. uh, so really endeavoring to be present. And again, there are kind of similar concepts that are easy to be uh, skeptical or critical of like, you know, live in the moment. And But something that I even mentioned to my best friend last night is because he had told me that he's benefited a lot from actually trying to enjoy every workout and so on. And I said, you know, it can seem a cliche, but it's true. You only live the process. I mean, mm -hmm. interesting example. I think Lane mentioned in a video that he, he got his PhD and he, he was like on top of the world for a week and then it was just normal living. It's a really weird direction in which to go with this, but I, you know, you're having me on here and I'm probably the only person in the fitness industry who would actually say this, but dopamine. It's, it's usually conceived of as being the reward uh, neurotransmitter. Like you do something awesome and you have this big secretion of dopamine and that's why you feel awesome. That's the neurochemical explanation. Um, that might be true to some extent, but simplifying it gets it wrong in terms of the time course. Dopamine drives motivation. So dopamine isn't, you don't get a ton of dopamine when you do something that makes you feel accomplished, you get that secretion of dopamine beforehand in anticipation of it. And that's what gets you out of bed and to do whatever you're doing. I mean, that's why you give someone a stimulant, dopamine goes through the roof, then they have energy, they feel better, etc. cetera. Um, so that speaks to, I don't know what that speaks to, talking about living, like, living in the moment and the fact that you, you're living the process. Um, so endeavoring to, um, to actually live in, in a manner that's consistent with the fact that whatever you're shooting for is just a concept, actually. You're here. This is your life. That will be your life, but it isn't. Um, that was kind of weirdly more philosophical than I intended. With regard to the, the recording things, I, I do think that that's um, extremely, can be extremely valuable. Uh, and that really comes down to issues with memory. And I find that there are at least two problems here. One is just forgetting things. Now, this happens to me like 50 times a day. I mean, I, I have genuinely very severe ADD, which means every single day I make, my, make a point of putting my keys in the same place, and almost every single day I forget wh what that location is. So that kind of memory issue, oh, I just ate a cup of rice, and it was like three cups. Um, also, you tend to find that people misremember things either in their own interest or not, depending on the psychology of the person. 
So if you, some people kind of lie to themselves. So like if they don't count, they'll say I did 15 reps and it's on video and it's 12 kind of thing. Or you'll have someone who's really hard on themselves and they'll say like, um, they'll, my form was completely terrible. Man, that set was trash. I shouldn't have done it. You show them the video and it's flawless. Um, so uh, it, it forces objectivity. It, for, it forces you not to rely on memory in terms of just error and additionally error that's biased. Um, and then again, it comes down to uh, making adjustments uh, on that basis, it, you know, in response to the evidence. Um, yeah. I think, <clears throat> I think there's, um, there's some awareness there, or I, I, I'm generating some awareness on what you just said, that there's a lot of value in coaching because of those things. Mm -hmm. Like, like for example, whether you're doing an email report or a, a video report, talking to your camera and reporting into your, your coach on a weekly basis, you, you have to reflect on the week. You have to write down your, your macros, your training. I think, um, there, there's so many things that is independent of how good the actual coach is that's valuable in that because just by the sheer logistics, you have to record nutrition, training, cardio, and your perception of it all. Uh, and, and then, sure, you can get a shitty coach and then tells you nonsense in response to that or, or, or says unhelpful things, but there's value just inherently in that. Um, it, it, it does force a lot of objectivity. And then it even gives you the opportunity to juxtapose your own self-talk versus someone who's less biased. Um, which, which I think is also valuable because sometimes you can try to get out of your head, but even that voice telling you to get out of your head is from in your own damn head. And it's very hard to be, um, more objective, even when it doesn't match the, the objective data. It's just difficult to get out of that sometimes, but to then also have the additional voice of someone you trust who you're paying, which reminds you that, oh, well, yeah, I, I do trust this person in addition to the objective data that, that kind of goes counter to what you're, what you're. Uh, feeling uh, is, I think, can be a very useful tool for people. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I, go on, Ian. Jacob, yeah. please do feel free to just tell me to shut up at any point. If you want to move on, I won't be offended. But um, yeah, go, go, go. gosh, there's just so much like gold there. One thing is interesting where you went like this and this. It immediately made me think of what's called the double column technique. It is used in cognitive behavior therapy to treat depression. And, and the research indicates that CBT is the gold standard of psychotherapy for treating depression. And basically what the double column technique is, there are, there are about 40 different ways to do it depending on context. But fundamentally, it's you write down negative thoughts you have, and then you argue against them. And what is so striking about that and helpful I'm going to therapy. Um, but I one study showing that that talks about the other 
Yeah. You can apply that to so many things. You know, you, you think, know, you think, it might even, it might even be something that is something that is positive, positive, positive. Oh, I had an awesome week. My diet was amazing. Then you look at a food log, and it's like 17 kilos of ice cream an hour. Well, it's probably not so great, you know. Um, that would so, be yeah, impressive, by the way. Right, I know. And another part of it is, it can force people to make good decisions in the moment. I mean, if you, if you, something I do. I keep a daily log every single day of everything I do. Now, 50% of what I do, I miss basically because I like forget to do it basically, but I make an attempt. And if I were to write like, uh, spent three hours on YouTube watching uh, curb your whatever memes that are popular now, like that, I'm not going to want to do that if I know I'm going to have to write it down. So it can cause people to actually make better decisions when they're making decisions. Um, but then just finally on the self-awareness point, I think one of the ideas that genuinely changed my life was expressed by, uh, Stephen Covey or Covey in the book, seven habits of highly effective people, which I strongly recommend. And he uses the phrase, you need not look, um, it isn't about looking at your life. It's about looking at the lens through which you are seeing your life. In other words, stepping back and the way I put it to people sometimes is look at what you're doing as if you are someone else, because immediately you're able to be more objective. I'll even have very frequently, maybe a third of the time someone asks me a question, I will say to them, so not technical questions about biochem or something, but what should I do in this situation? Very often I will say, what would you say to someone else? Sometimes I'll even say, think of what you would say to someone else and then do that. You don't even need to tell me what it is. Just, you know, intuitively. Um, so yeah, that's a huge part of it. Trying to get outside of yourself and view your, your thoughts and behavior and so on as if you're someone else. And so often you're able to say, man, that is fucking stupid. Like whatever it is I'm doing, that is just like that, you know, that is not consistent with who I want to be, what do I want to, what I want to achieve and so on. And then the just pure having the metacognitive override to do the right thing comes in. Awesome. That's a very common way of self-coaching is what would I do if this data that I'm looking at that's mine was my clients? What would I tell them to do? That's Three CCs. <laughs> yeah. thought it was 600 milligrams. <laughs> No, awesome. And I think uh, just as time uh, starts to wrap up, one thing I wanted to uh, speak to you both about was dealing with uh, expectations as a fitness professional, um, both from an athletic standpoint as well as you know being an educator, Eric, and content producer, uh, Ian. Um, how do you guys manage that? What have been your experiences with obviously increasing uh, amounts of fame or popularity over the years? Eric? Oh, I, I had an idea how I wanted to answer that. And then when you said with increasing popularity. Um, Sorry, man. You're very unpopular, Eric. I'm, I should yeah. answer this. A lot the Hodge twins. They're <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, always a solution to everything. I think, you. so when you're a fitness professional, you're going to be in a position of authority, whether you really like it or not, or even if you have a non-authoritative stance to coaching, you're going to be seen that way. I think that's something you have to realize. 
because that also puts you in the position of setting the stage for what the interaction should be like. So I think, uh, I can't remember who said it, but there's a really good quote, like we teach people how we want to be treated by the way we interact with them. You know, so if, if you have a client who emails you every 10 minutes and then you respond to them every time they email you, that will keep happening as, as an example of what I mean by that. Um, and if you don't give much of a response or, or if you like, let's say you act in a punitive way every time your client doesn't follow your, your guidelines, uh, then they're more likely to deceive you when they can't follow your plan. So you're actually hurting yourself, you know? So I, I think, I think the first thing to do is you have to know what your expectations should be in the first place. So you have to think about what is an appropriate coach client relationship. You know, how should you be interacting with your clients? You know, so I, I've read up on self-determination theory and, and things like, where does this come from? And I've also thought about, you know, this is a funny thing. We can both fire each other. I'm not really your boss. In some ways, you're my boss. So I remember Mike T presented this as an interesting relationship where it's kind of like you're the, you're the team manager while your, your client is both the athlete and the owner of the team at the same time. So he used the kind of an NFL example or a professional sports team. So I think you have to realize what is the actual nature of that relationship first, and then you can start to figure out what, should, what are reasonable expectations. So um, what, what time, what's a reasonable amount of time for me to get back to you? What's a reasonable amount of things that I can ask you to ask of me? What are standard expectations? What information do I need from you to be able to do my job effectively? Um, and then be willing to be collaborative. So I typically have a certain set of non-negotiables and they're not like you have to hit your macros every day. It's more like I need you to report on this day uh, within these hours uh, and I will get back to you within 24 hours. And if you email me on the weekend, yeah, I may not get back to you until Monday unless of course you're competing. That's just an example. But then I, I strictly enforce that, uh, not in a, in a mean way or anything. It's just that if I don't adhere to those guidelines, then it, it ruins everything else in my life and, and things really start to fall off quick. Um, and you can see coaches get burned out really quickly when they don't set up structures like that, where it's like, well, if I respond really quickly, then I'm better than the other coaches. I remember, uh, seeing, seeing like the, I pride myself on getting back to my clients 24 seven. My first thought is, well, I wonder what he'll be doing in five years. Cause damn sure won't be coaching. You're going to freaking hate your life, you know? Um, and but I, I know I'm interrupting again, but could I note that what's interesting about this is Eric's more relaxed but deliberate sense of this is the I'm going to respond in this kind of time frame results in Eric reliably gets back to me faster than anyone. That has been true for like five, at least five years. No one gets back to me. Uh, actually, maybe two not two people not in the fitness industry. But I'm I'm up there. I'm up there. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, how many times has it been like within ten minutes or something? Um, anyway, I wanted to note that. Yeah, and that's I think that 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 that's a, a product of me managing my life in a way that allows me the space to do things like that. Um, now, of course, if you're on my Instagram request or Facebook request list and you're not one of my friends, then you're like, what the fuck are you talking about? I've sent him like 10 messages and never even looked at them. But again, that that's my own expectation on myself. Like I'm going to respond to people who are 
our friends on Instagram or, or who I follow on, sorry, on Instagram or who are my friends on Facebook. But if people want to contact me otherwise, it needs to be coming through an email. Because I, I can't, I literally can't answer every question that I get uh, through every every social media platform. So, um, but that's, like I said, another example of setting up expectations on what I will do. Uh, and I think that is critical for a coach. Like, um, I've seen a lot of personal trainers get burned out because they give their personal cell phone to all their clients. And I'm not saying you can't be their friend. I'm not saying you can't have, you know, a relationship where you take the trainer off, hat off sometimes and you just get lunch with your client and talk about life. I think that's okay. But at the same time, if you teach your client that every time they get Chinese food and they weren't supposed to, there's a crisis and I need to call you and you got to talk me down from doing three hours of cardio, that's not helping them. You know, that's, that's really kind of putting them in the situation where they have no agency. So I think it's critically important to set up a set of expectations that go both ways. So you can also have accountability for you doing what you say you're going to do as a coach and that your client knows where their responsibility ends and where your guidance begins so that they can actually progress and, and hopefully not need you, you to the same degree later on if we're actually trying to help people develop you know, better lifestyle habits and changes. Yeah. Awesome. Ian? I really, I found very interesting that response. I would, I think I perceived the question a little bit differently in that my thought was expectation. So this is not inconsistent, in fact, with anything Eric said, but I think it's an absolute imperative that expectations arrive, or, excuse me, they need to arrive, obviously, on a train, but they also need to arise internally. They need to be your expectations. So, I mean, look, being very frank, the reason why in this moment I'm not upset about the fact that Jason Blaha made a video discussing the fact that I lift very light or whatever it was, um, is because I train very deliberately in that style. I believe it, I believe it to be ideal for me. I've been making progress, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it works better for my recovery. And yeah, I could like, I totally understand why someone would laugh at that. So in other words, if I were to impose on myself the expectation, you've been lifting for 10 years, so you've got to be able to deadlift like at least 300, come on, you bitch, you know, um, then there would be an issue. But they're just, you know, if, if I thought that were the, the wrong way or whatever, I would alter my behavior to be consistent with my own expectations. So but interestingly, that needs that I do think that needs to be balanced with being grounded uh, in terms of understanding how other people will, will respond to you. So I am extremely turned off by the statement, I don't care what anyone thinks. First of all, the people who say that pretty reliably care more than average about what other people think. I mean, ask the question, why are they making this big point of saying, I don't care what people think? Also, if they actually did, there would be something wrong with that. That, that isn't normal human psychology, not caring what other people think. But again, it's a balance between, it's not taking this person's values and imposing them on yourself, even though deep down they, you, you don't agree with them, they're not yours. Um, and, but at the same time, you don't wanna be someone who simply doesn't care about other people and, and their perception and so on. So again, using a very real example, my, my hope is that my behavior is much more mature than it used to be. And the fundamental reason for that is I assessed my own behavior and decided that it was inconsistent with who I wanted to be as a person. 
But do I care about the fact that people respond more positive to, positively to me now? Absolutely. If I were to say, I'm more mature for my own sake, I don't care about anyone else, they can think whatever they want, it doesn't matter. If they all hated me, it wouldn't matter. That would be not an appropriate attitude. So it, again, it's that balance. And as a result of that, I think you, you end up both very secure in yourself, but also someone who is frankly very attractive in the sense of you're able to engage with people in a mature manner, you don't perceive things as attacks and so on. And to be very frank, and I'm, I'm very much not someone to say something like this just to flatter someone, but Eric has struck me as being one of the best people in the industry in, in that sense. Um, in his, he'll, he will basically engage with anyone, um, even if they're highly critical. It seems very rare that, that anything, you know, irritates him. Um, and when he's kind of doing his own thing and, and maybe, I mean, I can't really think of an example of where someone really wished Eric used tons of trend or something. I don't sense that that would be an issue. Um, to the fame and popularity point, I, I, I'm in the camp of, I actually got this from Eric. He, he said something in a podcast about three years ago now, like, he always asks himself, before I po put anything out, I ask, will it benefit the world? I, I actually, I think that's a good standard without wanting to make it, this is going to be iconic. Everyone is going to talk about this Facebook status like it's Orwell's 1984. But really, you know, is often I will have the thought to post something and I'll just be like, wait, why? You know, maybe it's my, like, it just, it isn't going to do, it's not going to move anyone forward. It's not going to be worth anyone's time. Um, and, and just kind of apply that to everything and then be very consistent in doing that. Um, and people respond. So, Awesome. And to take this, I guess, from uh, different... Do you, do, you I, do you mind if I say something, Jacob? Oh, Eric, yes. of course, you're always butting in. Well, first, I just wanted to say I, I appreciate that. And that's, that's useful feedback because I, it lets me know that what I'm trying to do is at least moderately successful. I, I will say that I, things definitely bother me. Don't 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 get that wrong. I think it's just um, I do a good job of not losing my mind on my Facebook status in response to it when it happens, which I think often makes things worse. And that's just something I've realized. But um, yeah, I, I didn't address the whole like fame and increasing popularity thing. Um, this is an interesting thing that I found like uh, the discrepancy between actual coaching skill and perception of of popularity as a fitness professional. It's, it's big, you know, like, for example, um, myself and, Bert and Alberto have a lot more followers than the rest of the 3DMJ coaches. And that's not necessarily a reflection of who's the best coach. Uh, in fact, in, so, so since 2014, I brought my coaching numbers from like 30 to 40 weekly reports and four to five Skypes with someone uh, per week, half of those being recurring. Um, down to like two clients and a Skype every every month, one Skype. Uh, in that same time, for example, uh, like Jeff and, and, and Brad have maintained that same level of coaching for four years. So they've literally had 10 times the number of people they've worked with, yet people will think, because we're in the evidence-based community, that knowledge equals coaching skill. So therefore, my understanding of scientific principles means that I'm a better coach than them, and they get disappointed if they hear, oh, I have to with one of their coaches when in fact 
by just the sheer fact that they've honed their systems and had more experience, and then they can take the knowledge I give them and apply it to those systems, I would actually put money on the fact that they probably are able to deal with more situations and have more tools than I would in most coaching situations and have more intuitive success uh, because they just have a greater volume of, of people coming across and uh, their, 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 their screen and having more problems to solve. And that's a tough, that, that, that's, that's a tough thing to, to struggle with. Like I want to promote 3DMJ, but if I promote 3DMJ, I'm also inherently doing some self-promotion. So I know that people will, like, so it's, it's the thing that we kind of struggle with as a team is how do we promote our, our brand and display our coaching skills, something that's, that's hard. It's a very subjective, intangible thing to really show in a, like an Instagram post, you know, um, and that's the whole, one of the whole reasons we actually developed our, our podcast, you know, which has been more popular than I thought it would be, is to have the opportunity to kind of display some of those soft skills and to give more exposure to, the, to all the coaches. But it's, it's a funny thing. Um, you do, I'll, I'll speak in the I voice here. I feel sometimes at a disadvantage when I meet someone who's aware of me online who I haven't met because they have, I have no initial perceptions of who they are beyond just my snap judgments of, of seeing them, um, you know, but they have a, sometimes they, they literally feel like they have a relationship with me. Like people come to me and say, you've taught me so much. And I, I, I don't want to disparage that or reduce the value from it, but it is, it's difficult to, to meet someone like that who feels they have a relationship with you and you don't know them at all. Um, so that that's one of those things when when I have to interact with people and tell them why Internet they can't dating. work with their yeah when they can't work with their coach of choice I, I kind of say look you know like you don't just get to choose your coach we also have to take you on on our terms it's a two way street like I've got to have the availability I've got to interact with you this is um, this is a service but it's also a partnership in many ways which I think is something that um, people don't quite get when they initially seek out someone who is basically just pictures in a video that they've never interacted with before. So that's, that's, that's a, a unique challenge that I, I didn't, that was not obvious to me when, when we first started this thing. Awesome. Almost 10 years ago. That was, yeah, very insightful. What was that, Ian? One, the, the comment of being, having done this for 10 years, I said one foot in the grave. This is my kind of mm. default. For like someone turning twenty-seven, you know, I'm thirty-five, so that rolls right off my. 